I did something I don't normally do, and I actually typed out my messages. Is why my big Bible's not up here in my notebook. Um, so, in doing so, I realized I practically wrote out the message, <laughs> uh, which would not do good. You know, like we can't all be like Jonathan Edwards, come up here and just read a message and have revival break out. I'm going to give it a shot at the beginning, though. All right, listen, this is what I wrote. This is what I was praying through last night and writing, because I was writing with a pen, and I'm a lefty, and it started to wear down on my knuckles and getting the ink, and I was like, this is so stupid, but I was doing it right in front of my, like, triple monitor computer setup. <laughs> and I was like, wait, maybe I can type this instead of write it, but I've been writing it for 20 years, so it felt really unnatural. And then I was like, wait, because I was going to write it out and then copy it down into my book. I said, I could print this. So I did. Guys, you guys know what I do for a living for 20, 24 years now? I'm a senior IT consultant. But listen, old habits die hard. But anyway, the king has come for his reward, right? So the Easter story is centered on the now historically attested to resurrection of a crucified man who turned out to be God, just as he had claimed and the prophets of old had promised. He was prophesied by Isaiah, who called him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, also Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophet Daniel tells us that he saw this God-man ascending into the heavens and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We're also told to adopt the same attitude as this God-man who, existing as God did not consider equality with God as something that he could exploit for himself. So instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on himself humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, not because he died on the cross, but that he became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. For that reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And this part is, is a key point for where I want to go with this. Every knee will bow in the heavens and on earth, where we are, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This Jesus, this God-man that, that was prophesied and proclaimed and testified as himself, is king. But not just a king. He's the king. In Revelation 17 and 19, it says this. It calls him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul refers to him as the blessed and only sovereign. This was a radical statement, and I really want to take a minute to go into how radical it is, but I want you to hear this. 
Paul referred to him as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For Paul to make such a radical statement in the center of a Roman kingdom whose national decrees were Caesar is Lord. Caesar was the emperor. He was the only sovereign. Anyone who tried to rise up and claim themselves a sovereign was seen as an enemy, and the Roman Empire would immediately come and crush them and force them to submit to Roman rule. And Paul is out here proclaiming loudly, specifying on purpose, the only sovereign. The king of kings and lord of lords. And he didn't make that title up. That was a title that the Caesars claimed. They were the king of kings. They would conquer territories, allow their king to remain if he would rule and submit to the Roman Empire. And so Caesar became king of kings, also was proclaimed as lord. And so Paul comes along and says to the only blessed sovereign, the king of kings, the lord of lords, this is what we proclaim. This was the kerygma. Okay, the Kerygma is just the Greek word in the New Testament, which means the proclamation. And the proclamation was not, hey, you guys are in a bad place, but this guy, he came to get you out of that bad place and put you in a good place. That's part of the full gospel message, no doubt. But the proclamation was not that. The proclamation was that the king has come. The blessed and only sovereign king. And he has come. And for those who know him, you know why this is the best news. And that's the gospel. The gospel means good news. Paul and the rest of the early Christian church was proclaiming not just good news, but the best possible news, which was this. Christ has come and he is king. So the question remains, why? Why did he do it? Why did Christ take on the form of humanity, humble himself even to the point of death, death on a cross? And more than that, guys, I was, I was praying the other day, and I just started, I was just like feeling out for, for where to go in prayer, like, God, where are we going? What's, what's happening here? And I just kind of got on to... The idea that um, this concept for the joy set before him, right? And, and I was wondering, because I just went into this little self, self res, I don't know what word I'm looking for, self-reflective, res, thank you, introspective, self-reflective, all of them. Teamwork makes the dream work, guys. <clears throat> I was in this place, and I was like, but what... Of what value? Like, I was like, I know you did this. There's no doubt in my heart that you did this. I know for a fact you did this. I was like, but I just need to be reminded as to why. Like, we as a people, as humanity, we have rejected you. We have been stuck, embedded in this rebellion against you from the beginning. And I just started thinking about it. And I started just praying into this idea of like, okay, but you know what? Who sets the value? I was like, you 
You set the value of things. You set the value. You're the bar by which all value has to be measured. Your word, what you say is valuable, is what is valuable. And what you say isn't valuable, isn't valuable. In other words, you define value. And you looked at us and you said, you're valuable. And we can sit here and say why all we want until our brain short circuit. And we can, we can list all the reasons why we're not valuable, why we shouldn't be valuable, because of anyone in the world, we are always most intimate with our own reasons for not feeling valuable, our shortcomings, our failures, our sins, our wretchedness. We're, we're fully intimately aware of those things. And so sometimes it's hard to see beyond ourselves to see why such a supreme and good God could possibly value us. But he does. And I just started praying into that. And I was like, God, what you? And I just, I guess I was trying to like really allow the word to speak value, the value that is in the word to me. And I just started praying. You left heaven. You were already the only wise sovereign. It was yours already. The only thing that you didn't have dominion over was the creation that rebelled against you. And as God, you could have destroyed them. You could have wiped them out. You could have started over. You could have forcefully caused that rebellion to end. You could have crushed it. Just like every other sovereign in the history of mankind has done. And how they have always dealt with it. How Caesar and all the emperors dealt with all their rebellions. He could have done that. But he chose not to. Instead, he chose a mind-blowing path to crush this rebellion. And it was to come and humble himself and take on the form of humanity. And to obey, even to the point of death on the cross. And because of that, he gets highly exalted. But before he gets highly exalted, guys, as a human, where it says he emptied himself, what he did, he did not become any less fully God, but he chose to willingly submit his, his divinity and his, his free access to that divine nature of his in order to live fully as a human being. And to live completely dependent on the Father. Both to set an example and to show us what needed to be done. And he did it. And if you think it wasn't hard, you're not paying attention. He fully submitted. Do you, know, do you guys know that you can't be tempted by something if you don't desire that thing, right? Like if I came up to you and said, hey, will you help me build a house? In exchange, I'll let you sleep in the mud for the next two years. Is that a tempting offer to you? To most of you? <laughs> I know some granola crunchies out there that are like, say less. <laughs> but let's pretend that mud is just filled with pig crap and all the worst stuff possible, and you have to sleep in that up to your neck. Does that sound tempting to you? No, that's not tempting. For it to tempt you, it has to be something you would desire. 
Jesus goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. At that point, how many of you guys think he was hungry? He was hungry. And the first temptation that the, the, the enemy brings to him is, hey, I know you're starving. Like You're at the extent of what the human body can go without food now. But you're, you're trusting God. Turn this rock into bread and eat. The reason why that was a temptation was because there was a physical desire and need in his body that wanted and needed food. And he rejects it. And then the next two temptations, right, have to do with his identity and his purpose and his mission. Culminating in this, Jesus, look at the kingdoms of this world, at this earth, I will give them all to you right now. You won't have to go through what you're planning on going through. I'll give it to you now. All you have to do is just bow down. That was a tempting offer to the God-man Jesus. That was his reason for coming, was to reclaim and to reunite all of creation under his lordship. And he resists, and he says, no. These temptations were real, and he refuted them in order to walk in the obedience that was necessary for him to win back the joy that was set before him, which was us. He spoke value. I'm sitting there praying, and I'm praying into this, and I'm saying, God, your value, your For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It says he despised the shame of it. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God afterwards. This was the the joy. The joy that was set before him. The thing that kind of the the picture on the rearview mirror for why you're, you're doing what you do, right? The reminder as to why you're doing it. To win us back. Right? It's... It's this dual theme that was going on in my prayers. And then I, this prayer, it was just like, I, I felt like, I don't want to use the words lightly, but I felt like I was either prophesying or I began to proclaim or uh, I began to plead in the spirit, I guess, like for, for truth to be seen. And it began to resonate me, right? That it's, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I began to just think like it was for this value that Jesus came and really did humble himself. He endured dirty diapers. Like he, he came and he endured the, the puberty process of humanity. He endured, he endured, this is what began to resonate. He endured being unknown, being disrespected, being unrecognized, unvalued for who he was by his peers. Just that simple thing. Think think high school age, what you went through. He endured that type of social interaction. And then when he became a man and he began his ministry, he begins to endure the ridicule of the people that, that he knows are ants. And he endures that. And I just began to feel that on like a on a, a level. Like and I just the, the concept came to mind. It was like, his love is what gives me my value. And he loved first. Like, we love because he first chose to love us. 
And that's the end of the story. That is what makes us value. The God of heaven and earth, the one who sets the bar for value, the one who decides what is valuable is not, chose to love us, and that set the bar for value. We are now most valued to the Father. We are are so valued that actions speak louder than words. Through demonstration, he gave his only beloved son up to the, the cost and the price that we were meant to pay. And Isaiah says that it pleased God to crush his son, not because he's a sadomasochist and wanted to see Jesus suffer. It pleased him because of the joy that was set before them as they did this. It pleased him to crush his son in order that we could become righteous before God. That was the value he set, and he didn't just say it. He demonstrated that he walked the walk. He, he backed it up with action, and he demonstrated that his love set the value on us so that the only reason we would not run to him would be because we don't believe that. We have not been exposed to that truth. And even worse, we've been actively deceived and and oppressed and suppressed and held captive by that lie. We have been actively held in captivity while the freedom of truth has been right before us. Paul describes this state for the Jewish people as saying they were partially blinded. They could not see. And I began to pray into that like, like some, I just got fierce. And I just began to imagine myself, probably in some Lord of the Rings setting, right? Like marching through the lands and just with hosts of people just proclaiming the truth that Jesus is Lord. But in my mind, I began to really think through what this looked like. And I, I, was, I was like, man, it's redemption of our value in our own heart, right? We didn't need to redeem our value before God. It was for the value he had for us that he did all that. But it was the redemption of our, of our own ability to see the truth. So I wrote down this, I said, you see, none of this would have been necessary, but we were deceived at the beginning. And because of that deception, we joined a rebellion that was already underway. Do you understand? The serpent that was in the garden had already rebelled. There was a rebellion in the heavens, and that's why he was there. And for those of you guys who love the Hebrew and Greek and want to dig into it, He's referred to as the serpent. And the Hebrew word seraph, which is where we get seraphim, means serpent, means fiery serpent. And the Hebrew, the Hebrew audience would have saw this connection. It just refers to angelic beings, right? Spiritual beings. And the author was hinting that the serpent was not just a physical snake, but an angelic being in rebellion. And that angelic being was able to, de- to deceive and thus oppress Eve through a simple lie. Did God really say? Well, I think he just doesn't want you to be like him, but if you eat this, you will be. 
which was the motivation of the initial rebellion. And then Eve says this. This was her response when God came to her. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Or hear it this way. The serpent deceived me and I rebelled. And humanity remains in that rebellion to this day. This rebellion that they want to be God. That they don't want a king over them. They want to be like everyone else. Their own king. And so they remain in this rebellion. And from that point forward, we consistently choose false gods and remain in our open rebellion to the one true king, the only wise sovereign, Jesus. And we consistently remain under the slavery of deception. The rebellion manifests itself in your life every day as sin. Sin is the fruit of this rebellion. You've rebelled against the knowledge and the truth of God, and you now live according to your own knowledge and your own truth, which is no truth. You're in open and active rebellion against the one true king. And this is history. Think about it. Israel is captive in Egypt. They come out of Egypt, and they rebel against the Lord, and they create a golden calf, and they call that calf God. And they created it in their own image, what they wanted God to look like. And then they worshipped him the way they wanted to worship. Through revelry and chaos. At one point in Israel's history, because this is the up and down flow, the kingdom splits. And the northern kingdom, they create golden calves. Again, this is after the very temple of Solomon had already been built and the cloud descended and God was physically present there with them. This king Jeroboam decides that in order to keep the Israelites from the northern tribe to come down and worship at the temple, he sets up two golden calves as places to worship. One in Dan, one in Bethel. And the crazy part is Bethel literally means house of God. And this was seen as an open rebellion to God. So much so, if you read the Chronicles of the Kings in, in 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, read it. The northern kings never once follow the Lord. Every single one of them is listed as doing worse than their father before him. But here's the crazy part. Even 15 generations of kings later, the, the crime that God is holding them accountable for is that they continue in the sin of their father, Jeroboam, who set up golden calves and said, worship the Lord there. And you can think about all the things Ahab and Jezebel did and all the worst kings of the northern kingdom, and yet every single one, go back and read it. Scripture test me, do it. Read it. It says this, that they continued, this is what the Lord held against them, that they continued in the sins of their father, Jeroboam, and they did not remove the idols that had been set up. They were worshiping false gods in the places named the house of God. It was the height of rebellion, and it expresses the, the rebellion of humanity that we're walking in, that we see the world in, that those of us who have been rescued from this already see clearly, but most don't. These false gods that later begin to introduce, they're not even, they no longer even call them Yahweh anymore. 
they start to, ref- they, Asherah poles, they start building Asherah poles and temples and idols to Baal. It's just, it's the height of awfulness. But these false gods constantly deceiving them with false promises of what? Protection, prosperity, salvation from their enemies, but always according to their own ways. And this is why Israel continued, the people of God continued to be put back into captivity. They would repent, come out, and acknowledge the sovereignty of the Lord, and they'd be blessed. And that blessing would cause them to forget their Lord and begin to go after the other gods. Why? Because within humanity is a pull to be your own God. And these gods created in your own image allow you to worship them the way you want to worship allow you to live the way you want to live, and they continually pulled them back into the same captivity over and over. These gods, these false gods, these gods that have no eyes, they can't see, they have no mouth, they can't speak, no ears, they cannot hear, no feet, they can't walk, they're propped up by the humans that made them, yet they still chose to worship those things. So the rescue and redeem part, to rescue us from this bondage of sin and deception and to provide forgiveness for our rebellion, the king decides to rescue us from the bondage of these false gods and to redeem us with his own life. And I want to make sure you see that I separated rescue and redeem on purpose. The king decides to rescue us from the bondage of these false gods and then chose to redeem us with his own life. We had forfeited the inherent value God gave us with his image. We had surrendered it and submitted it to false gods and therefore ended up in oppression, captivity, bondage, slavery to all these different things. And listen, don't think today's any different. Our gods just look different. Turn on the news, just look at the Emmys or the Grammys or any of these things. People spend their entire lives, they work 80, 90 hours a week, every week. They grind and grind so that they can win a golden statue in their own image holding up a globe. It's the height of their life's work is to have this golden statue on their shelf. Pro athlete, sports, I'm an athlete my whole life, so don't get me wrong, football's still awesome, but... So many of them are pursuing this with the wrong, with the idolatry in their heart. They're after the thing, and when they get it, watch their victory. They kiss these things. They hold them. They embrace them. They weep over these trophies. Bank accounts are idols that we worship today. Shiny cars, beautiful houses on waterfront property, whatever it is, The idolatry of our heart today has not changed in function. It just looks different. And you're held captive to them all the same. The lies that these things will provide for you, that these things will bring you the joy you desperately want, that these things will provide the life you so longingly want that you've tasted little glimpses of and maybe you've done it through something and now you think that's the way to pursue it. You are falsely, terribly deceived. You're pursuing false gods that aren't gods. And you're doing it at the cost of the greatest news possible, which is that Jesus is here and he rules. He's the only sovereign and he wants to rule your life. And with that comes everything you have longed for. What comes with that is true provision, 
true salvation, true prosperity. And I just mean whole prosperity. I'm not talking about you become a billionaire. With that comes this statement that Paul made. Though we own nothing, we live as if we possess all things. Because that comes with this truth. Jesus knew what he was doing when he came and he knew what he was saying. And this is, this is the final point because I want to sum it up so that you get the story. All of Israel's history was centered around this one great deliverance called the Exodus. They had been held captive in Egypt in slavery for a couple hundred years. And then God sent a deliverer, Moses, who came. And his proclamation was, let my people go so that they can come worship me. I want you to understand that very important point. No one cheered, so maybe you missed it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't cheer. We're in New England. I get it. Okay? Let my people go so that they may worship me. Worship to them did not mean so that they could come out, have a music festival, and then return back to bondage. Worship was the living of your life in service of the sovereign. Let my people go so that they may worship me, so that I can be their God and they will be my people. Now, Jesus understood this, this whole message, that when God was confronting the bondage of his people, it was not just in the natural. He was confronting the fact that they needed to be rescued from the false gods that they had been in bondage to, And that's what the ten plagues confront, each one. When you go through it, each plague was God confronting the gods of Egypt and their false power. Now, when I say false power, I don't mean that it wasn't actual doing something. But false in comparison to it was not from God. And then when you look at the story of the plagues, each one confronted the major gods that Egypt worshipped, that they were in deception under, and that Israel had been under for hundreds of years. If you don't think that impacted them, where do you think the golden calf came from when they were at Sinai? They were under this bondage, and God came and destroyed those gods one by one, demonstrating that he was the only God, that he was the only sovereign, that he was king. And the final one, this final one confronted Pharaoh himself, who claimed to be God on earth. And in that, he broke the back of the enemy in the heavens and then set the people free on the earth so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in the heavens and on the earth and beneath the earth. Jesus' dominion was meant to be universal. And the Exodus, they would have understood this. They knew it. This was their history. They understood that they had been rescued from the gods of Egypt. It's mentioned multiple times in in Moses' writings. That they had been delivered from the gods of Egypt. And also Pharaoh. And then he brings them out into the mountain and he sets them apart. Well, now Jesus comes. But here's here's the thing. Backtrack one second. After that, their whole history was about 
God present with them, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And we see their history play out. And then the temple comes and God resides. And then they, re- they, they rebel and they rebel and they rebel and they rebel until at one point, God is forced to leave the temple. And Ezekiel captures this drama in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, like this whole drama of, of the wickedness that's going on and God, having, God essentially being forced out of the temple to leave because they had rejected him. And he promises, and Ezekiel prophesies this new temple, that there will be a new temple and God will dwell in it. And so Israel holds on to this promise for the rest of their history from that point on, all the way through captivity and afterwards, and then they come out and they rebuild the temple, but the glory of the Lord never returns to it. And then we have 400 years of silence in their history where God does not record a single word from a prophet, nothing. And the next thing that happens is Jesus comes and Jesus is on the scene. And what does he do? He proclaims that he is the temple. He proclaims that he has come. The glory of the Lord has returned is what he is proclaiming. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. He makes this wild statement that says, before Abraham was, I am. And he invokes the most holy, personal name of God himself for himself in Yahweh. So there's no doubt he's doing this. So Jesus then comes, and in the crucifixion, what we see is Jesus confronting the gods of the world, the gods of this age. And it says that he crucified all things within himself at this moment. Paul says that, Paul referencing and quoting Psalms says that uh, had, the God, had the rulers of this age known they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known what was happening, had they known this was the moment of their ultimate defeat, they would have never taken part in it. But because they didn't know, they did. Because in their mind, these these beings, these false gods that had been ruling the nations, every nation except Israel, right? And you can read further and dig deeper, and there was a prince of Persia and prince of Greece, and Michael's called the prince of Israel. You got all these principalities and powers that ruled nations and territories and dominions. Whoever they were and whatever they were, we know they were there and they were real, And they saw this as their moment to finally defeat the the Son of God and finally claim ultimate rulership over this world. And instead, Jesus reverses the game and through the crucifixion and the resurrection, conquers death, conquers the grave, takes all of authority in heaven and earth and says, it is mine, it is not yours. He strips every power that thought they had power. And then it says he publicly mocked them. He took captivity captive. You understand? And then the language is that he paraded them down like Roman emperors when they conquered territories. They would parade the kings and the rulers of the kingdom they conquered naked and in handcuffs behind them or tied up in ropes. And he would be on his chariot going through and this would proclaim his ultimate victory, humiliating his enemies and letting the people know that they were victorious. And this is the language Paul uses saying that at the crucifixion and the resurrection, this is what Jesus did. He defeated every one of the gods. Just think the Egyptian gods, but now all these gods that thought they ruled and had dominion and thought they were about to take ultimate dominion. And instead, he chose not to stay dead. Why? Because the grave had no power to hold him. 
That's what the scripture says. And because of that, he conquered them. And through his death and blood and resurrection, he also paid the price for us. The sin that we were guilty of, that we had lived under because of our rejection and open rebellion to the king, was now pardoned if we would choose once again to embrace him as Lord. Do you understand? It wasn't if you would cry a lot and say a prayer saying you're sorry. That was not the condition to walk in this new freedom. The condition was to lay down your rebellion and submit your heart and life once again to Jesus as the king and to give him the reward he was due. With that comes all the different expressions of repentance, which could be tears, sadness, anger, frustration, so many different ways to experience repentance, which was to change the way you think, what you believe. In other words, you're right. Jesus is Lord. These other ones are not Lord. You've exposed them. They've been laid waste. And so this was where I concluded in my prayer. All this was going on in my mind while I was praying, and I was just praying into it. And I was saying, like, this is the proclamation. This is the good news. This is what Paul went through all the nations proclaiming. Jesus is king. Caesar is not. Jesus is. All your gods, they're not. Jesus is. All your ways, your work, circumcision, and your festivals, and your holidays, they're not. Jesus is. The proclamation, the kerygma, the good news was that Jesus is king and you can be free to worship him. There's nothing left in your way. There's no gods. There's no obstacles holding you back any further. They've been conquered. They've been stripped of all power. All they can do now is whisper lies to you. But we're here proclaiming the truth. The truth that Jesus is now king of all nations, of all people. And this truth will set you free. All you have to do is believe this truth. So, in Revelations 11.15, which by the way, if you're not familiar, that's the end of the book. This is the end of the story. It says this, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God, and he will rule forever. This is the summarization from John, one of Jesus' disciples, who was also a Jew, who also understood the Exodus and all the parallels. He said, the kingdoms of this world that used to submit to these other false gods and were held captive by them have become the kingdoms of our Lord, and he will rule all of them forever. So line up, recognize your true king, worship him, and be free but not free to just be free. Remember, the exodus was, set my, let my people go, set them free so that they can worship me. And that's our call. The freedom pronouncement is that you've been free, and this is what Paul says. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Do you hear that? Because I can tell you this. Growing up, I read this this passage like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you obey in your heart, believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. And we miss over the entire emphasis of Paul. 
Paul was not emphasizing that there's, there's, a, there's two parts to getting saved. You have to, you have to talk and you have to believe. That was not his point. He's not creating a formula. He was stressing this. This is the message of faith that we're proclaiming to you, that we're declaring to you. If you will lay down your rebellion, and if you will confess with your own mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that he is the resurrected God, then you will be saved from all these things. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, which results in salvation. Your confession, your genuine heartfelt confession that Jesus is Lord, is what results in salvation. It's so simple. And it's so difficult because it requires laying down your own lordship. It requires bending the knee and confessing, Jesus, you are Lord. Have me. I'm yours. I submit joyfully because I see that this is the best news. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, meaning God's people at the time, and everyone who's now God's people... Because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. All who say Jesus is Lord, he will richly bless. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, and this is where I felt like, man, I started bursting with like, just pleading in the spirit. How then can they call on him who they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring this good news, but not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith The faith we want people to walk in, the belief that he is Lord, comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the proclamation about Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as if God himself were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. Because he made the one who did not know sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, that is the whole point. Easter Sunday, the resurrection is about this, that Jesus is king. It's been proclaimed. It's been presented. He's here for his reward. You're his reward. And the only thing holding him back from receiving his reward is you bending the knee and recognizing who he is. That he is Lord. That he accepts you as you are. There is no perfection required. There is no pre-qualification to get approved first. There is just you recognizing your state. I have been in rebellion against you, Lord, and it has led to messes. 
but I now see with my eyes and my heart that you are Lord. And I confess it with my mouth and I believe it in my heart that you are Lord. And then you just receive the blessing he promises, which is salvation. Guys, this is the gospel. If you're someone in here who's never heard it, if you don't know Jesus and therefore you're confused about how it's such good news that he's the king, it's simply this. Where every other king would crush rebellion with an iron fist and swords and weapons, he crushed it by loving us to death so that we could take part in his resurrection life. That's why it's good news. And if you're here today, guys, listen, I don't care if you, you've never heard of Jesus or you feel like you've been walking with Jesus for 100 years. If the Holy Spirit is producing something in your heart that says you need to bend your knee and recognize him as Lord, you do it. You do it. What pride would hold us back from such a thing? I have no doubt that there are many in the church who, who think they're Christians but have never done this. And there's plenty of scripture that talk about how there'll be people who cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead in his name. And he's going to say, I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness. You rebellious one. In other words, they never bowed the knee. They never actually confessed him with their heart as Lord. They used him for the benefits, but never submitted their life. If that's you, this is your moment. Today is the day of salvation. And he said, this is it. So the call to you guys right now, where you're at, you don't have to wait for anything to happen. If your heart is beating, then you need to respond. And you respond right now. Okay? Do it. Begin to respond right now. We're just going to begin to pray and worship this God who is king. He's worthy to be worshipped. We're going to worship him. And I want you to just begin to respond in your heart. And here's the thing. If you're having a hard time doing it, you don't know what to do. You're confused. You're not sure what to do. Come up front. Yeah, in front of everybody. That's right. Because Jesus is Lord. And the whole point is this is an act of surrender. You are surrendering your lordship, your pride, your fear, your stuff to him in exchange for the life you've been looking for. So you come up. I'll be here. Lots of people will be here. Just begin to go after God here right now, okay? We're just going to begin to worship Jesus because he's worthy, because he's king, because today is the day we've chosen to celebrate the resurrection of the living God. This is what we're doing. Come up front. Come get prayer if you need it. Let's let God be God in our midst. Let's do it. The testimony that's been happening for so long here is that God has been touching people as they sit, as they stand, where they're at. God is present. And he wants to respond. If you're willing to give him that response, you will have him. That's a guarantee from Scripture.